0: This episode of Navara Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navara Live. I'm your host, Ash Sarka. And with me tonight is the ever-insightful Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing?
1: Hi, Ash. Um, I'm okay. I am freshly submitted my PhD, which (gasps) means I have all the time in the world to doom scroll
0: I'm so glad that you've given up that stupid academic nonsense and you're now full-time dedicated to ruining your mental health on the internet. Coming up later tonight, the Israeli ambassador's grotesque smears of dead Palestinians, how the excuses Israel are giving for bombing hospitals just don't stack up, and the latest updates on the attacks on Gaza. So stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story. Former Home Secretary Suella Braverman has struck back after being sacked by Rishi Sunak. In a lengthy resignation letter, Braverman outlines a deal that she and Sunak made before she agreed to become Home Secretary, and she introduces it with this unfiltered burn. As you know, I accepted your offer to serve as Home Secretary in October 2022 on certain conditions. Despite you having been rejected by a majority of party members during the summer leadership contest and thus having no personal mandate to be Prime Minister, I agreed to support you because of the firm assurances you gave me on key political priorities. One of those political priorities was a promise from Sunak to pass new legislation to stop channel crossings. In particular, Braverman says that Sunak agreed to incorporate clauses into the new bills that would stop international law being used to prevent deportations. She mentions the EHRC and the Human Rights Act. Maybe she had the Refugee Convention in mind too. Another priority was to publish statutory guidance to schools on biological sex and, to quote, safeguard single-sex spaces. They also agreed to reduce overall legal migration and to deliver the now defunct Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. So, what's Braverman's assessment of progress against those priorities? Well, this is what she writes. For a year as Home Secretary, I have sent numerous letters to you on the key subjects contained in our agreement, made requests to discuss them with you and your team, and put forward proposals on how we might deliver these goals. I worked up the legal advice, policy detail, and action to take on these issues – This was often met with equivocation, disregard, and a lack of interest. You have manifestly and repeatedly failed to deliver on every single one of these key policies. Either your distinctive style of government means you are incapable of doing so, or, as I must surely conclude now, you never had any intention of keeping your promises. These are not just pet interests of mine. They are what we promised the British people in our 2019 manifesto which led to a landslide victory. They are what people voted for in the 2016 Brexit referendum. Our deal was no mere promise over dinner to be discarded when convenient and denied when challenged. So not only is Swella Braverman calling Rishi Sunak weak and dithering, she's also calling him a traitor. She's saying quite clearly that we made this agreement. I followed up on the matters that we had agreed together and you didn't want to know. The letter, of course, comes on the eve of the Supreme Court's long-awaited judgment on the legality of the government's Rwanda deal. And Braverman has this to say about the scenario where the government loses. "'If we lose in the Supreme Court, an outcome that I have consistently argued we must be prepared for, you will have wasted a year and an act of Parliament only to arrive back at square one.' Worse than this, your magical thinking, believing that you can will your way through this without upsetting polite opinion, has meant you have failed to prepare any sort of plan B. I wrote to you on multiple occasions setting out what a credible plan B would entail and making clear that unless you pursue those proposals in the event of defeat, there is no hope of flights this side of an election. I received no reply from you. I can only surmise that this is because you have no appetite for doing what is necessary and therefore no real intention of fulfilling your pledge to the British people. Braverman also says that if the government wins in the Supreme Court, it won't be good enough. Her argument, she believes the bill has been completely watered down in the attempt to get it through. So even if the court rules with the government, the bill won't be strong enough to let the government do all the illegal things backbenchers would like it to. Grabman also had some strong words for the government's response to the pro-Palestine marches too. Claiming to have gone hoarse trying to convince him to take tougher action on the, quote, hate marches, she called his response to her demands uncertain, weak, and lacking in the qualities of leadership that this country needs. Dalia, in light of all this, how do you think Rishi Sunak might be affected by the Rwanda verdict that's due tomorrow morning?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think that... um... Even with Braverman gone, I do think that we will see very Braverman responses to the ruling, whichever way it goes. You know, we have to remember that the Rwanda policy is not actually particularly coherent or effective as a policy when it comes to fulfilling its stated aims, which is to stop boat crossings. Um, You know, for a range of logistical and, and legal reasons, it is an incredibly difficult policy to pass and implement, even if, you know, the ruling did go with the government. I can see so many appeals on individual cases. Um, that, in essence, it wouldn't actually function as a migration policy. We're also looking at lack of infrastructure and lack of operational um, capacity in Rwanda to actually cope with the kinds of scales that um, that Swella Braverman is, was talking about and Rishi Sunak was talking about. And that even in the best case scenario, if it went ahead as planned, as exactly what, the way that Swella Braverman and Rishi Sunak wanted it to go ahead, it actually you know the actual numbers of migrants that it could relocate d- through that process is such a drop in the ocean compared to the number of people that are that are trying to migrate to britain now obviously it is my position that i don't want to see anyone going to rwanda because i think that refugees have an inalienable right to settle in a place of their choosing and if they choose the uk they should be able to settle there but if we're looking at it from a conservative position I think that they always knew that even if this policy did pass the legal checks, it would be practically not possible to pass. So, I think that whatever happens, we're going to see a similar approach, which is if it doesn't pass, it will be used as essentially a form of political theater to to, to drum up uh, hatred against interventionist judges—that kind of long-standing trope that the conservatives heavily rely on when the law doesn't go their way—is to kind of stir up hatred against the judges themselves um, to try and mount a sort of uh, a campaign to leave the European Court of Human Rights to essentially use it to further agitate um, these divisions within the British public. And that's if it doesn't pass. If it does pass. Um, then I think that they will take it as an initial victory, but then again, find a myriad of reasons to, to blame the what little human rights infrastructure and legal infrastructure that Britain is still involved in and still has um, for the failure of actually implementing the policy. And so whatever happens, I do think we are going to see a similar response from the Conservative Party, which is to treat this as a form of political theatre, which is essentially all it was. It's always been a way for the government to, whatever way it goes, to drive a wedge into um, British, the British political landscape, to further weaken, the the to offer cover for further weakening the very limited ties that Britain still has to human rights law. Um, rather than this being any kind of cohesive, um, actual, actually cohesive migration policy. What I think that Braverman's letter is probably going to do is it probably means that the blame for that loss, whatever, wherever it goes, will not only be directed towards so-called liberal establishment judges, but also a little bit towards Rishi Sunak. And I think that is partly Suella Braverman trying to pave her own way to be the potential leader of next leader of the Conservative Party. But yeah, I think we're going to see similar things to what we could have expected, which is essentially weaponizing the verdict whichever way it goes to try and further weaken the the very meager mechanisms of human rights accountability that exist in this country, especially, of course, for migrants and refugees.
0: I mean, I think the word political theatre is exactly the right one, Dahlia. It's something that we see with the Conservative Party all the time, which is if you get the result that you want, you claim it as a win. If you don't get the result that you want, you incorporate it as part of your narrative about the war on the woke blob. And even when it comes to Brexit, if you do get what you want, you claim that you're being thwarted all the way, and that's why it's not delivering all the things that you promised that it would. So from the perspective of Tory headbangers, Whatever verdict they get tomorrow, win, lose or draw, it's kind of a factional gain for them. Along with the return of David Cameron to the cabinet, the sacking of Suella Braverman has sparked a backlash amongst the Tory right. Political suicide. That's how grassroots activists have been describing Sunak's reshuffle in leaked WhatsApps seen by Sky News. The Conservative Democratic Organization, uh, which is the one which is furiously... Uh, lighting up the group chats. It's a group of Tory party members who were enraged by the ousting of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. In the WhatsApp chats, this was one Tory activist's assessment of Sunak's new front bench. The new Tory government, Rishi Sunak, stabbed the one person who gave him a top job, rejected by us, done nothing in the year he's been the cuckoo prime minister, rejected by the people according to the polls. Hunt rejected by us four times and disliked by the people according to the polls. Cameron didn't like the result of a democracy, so ran away and let down his constituency by resigning, got caught being a naughty man. Did I miss anything? I can only assume that being caught being a naughty man was in reference to the Greensill lobbying scandal. This is what some thought of Braverman's sacking. Activist one, Just watch the idiots on GB News saying Suella was out of control. She was the first minister in years I actually felt was a real conservative with genuine conservative values. I hope she runs for leadership and kicks Sunak to touch. Activist two. This cabinet is pretty much the exact opposite of what we voted for in 2019. Activist three. If she does and gets voted in overwhelmingly by the membership, the snakes will oust her, ignore us all and install another puppet. David Cameron isn't popular either, with one person in a group saying this. His biggest regret was Brexit, even though he was always a Eurosceptic. Why? Because it robbed him of post-PM pounds on the Davos circuit. He's back to redeem himself under Davos' darling Nutsack. Nutsack is apparently an occasional nickname for Sunak. The threat of division isn't just running through members' group chats. It raised its ugly head in Parliament too, with Andrea Jenkins submitting her letter of no confidence in Sunak to the Tories' 1922 committee. In it, she said this, and just, heads up, the grammar is a little garbled, it's not just me. Rishi's Machiavellian involvement in getting rid of our democratically elected leader, Boris Johnson, who bravely fought for Brexit when Parliament was in deadlock. Yes, Boris... The man who won the Conservative Party a massive majority was unforgivable enough. But then to purge the centre-right from his cabinet and then sack Suella, who was the only person in the cabinet with the balls to speak the truth of the appalling state of our streets and a two-tier policing system that leaves Jewish community in fear for their lives and safety. Other Tory MPs have come out against Sunak's reshuffle too. This was Jacob Reesmog
2: on Newsnight you're now in a situation where you have essentially an unelected prime minister and an unelected foreign secretary who's not responsible for answering questions in the commons. Is that right for the Conservative Party? It's constitutionally proper. The government speaks with one voice and therefore any minister, however junior, answering questions in the commons answers for the government, not as an individual. So I don't think that the House of Commons can't hold the government to account on foreign policy, it can. Do you think that Rishi Sunak is in danger? I know you're not in favour of joining a reform party or anything like that, but do you think he's in danger of splitting the Tory party? No, I think we're in danger of losing votes to the reform party. I saw Rich Tice earlier on this evening on, on GB News, and he is um, as happy as can be. I mean, he really is. The, the champagne will be flowing in the reform party's headquarters tonight after what's been done today.
0: Danny Kruger and Miriam Cates are co-chairs of the New Conservatives, a group of right-wing Tory MPs who entered Parliament in 2017 and 2019. Last night, they held a meeting to discuss the reshuffle. Today, in a public statement, Cates and Kruger say this. We are deeply concerned that yesterday's reshuffle indicates a major change in the policy direction of the government. The Conservative Party now looks like it is deliberately walking away from the coalition of voters who brought us into power with a large majority in 2019. So, Dahlia, we've got a ragtag bunch of furious grassroots activists and some 2017 and 2019 MPs. Do you think that this faction has enough to destabilize Rishi Sunak and perhaps bring down his government?
1: I mean, I do think that Rishi Sunak's government is a, a lame duck government. Rishi Sunak himself is a lame duck prime minister. I don't think that this faction is what is going to bring him down. I think the clock is ticking already. I think that what we've seen in the Suella Braverman letter was her essentially setting out the terms for her to run as leader when Rishi Sunak loses. And I think if I was Suella Braverman, God forbid, um, then I would probably be just wait for him to fail on his own terms, to have to inevitably call a general election, which he will have to do. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine it, he's going to be able to hold on for much longer than another year without holding a general election. Uh, the Obviously, the, the assumption is that he will lose. You know, at the beginning of this month, um, the Conservatives were polling 18 points behind Labour. I will say Keir Starmer is doing his very, very best to try and narrow that gap and put the possibility of a Labour government in jeopardy. Obviously, his dealing with uh, the issue in Palestine, with the war on Palestine is uh, is is catastrophic for a huge chunk of his voter voter base um who are very passionate about human rights in Palestine. Um, but you know, the assumption is that Rishi Sunak will lose the next election and will lose it fairly catastrophically. And I think it's at that point that this coalition will then make a pretty strong intervention, I think, uh, to reclaim the party and continue what Boris Johnson began. Because I do think that in the eyes of a lot of the Conservative base, uh, Boris Johnson, you know, they weren't living in the same reality that we were living in with Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, you know, leaving, getting us out of the European Union, and I think even some of his particular ways of handling the COVID pandemic were not seen as, as egregiously as some of us might see, have might have seen it. Um, and actually he is seen as being a somewhat a heroic leader amongst a lot of the, that faction. And I think that this faction is currently setting the stage, making, you know, Suela Bravaman is making sure that she is preemptively distancing herself from what is anticipated to be a considerable failure of Rishi Sunak at the next election. Uh, I think Rishi Sunak is not making that easier on himself by you know himself being unelected and roping in another unelected man who is broadly pretty unpopular amongst both the conservatives and the lib- and liberal people, um, both for the, for by the conservatives for vote campaigning for Remain and by you know Labour or liberal kind of voters for actually calling the referendum to begin with that led to us leaving the European Union, so that kind of what is often called the kind of moderate wing of the of the party which I think is I I kind of reject that term I don't think there's anything moderate about turning our public services into a casino for the rich you can say that on cultural issues they're a little bit less rabid than the kind of Braverman, Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg faction but I think in these kind of factions are coalescing in order to battle for the internal politics of the party once Rishi Sunak has, as is anticipated, lost the election. I don't think that it would be necessarily very strategic for them to try and destabilise Rishi Sunak's government before that, because the Conservatives are very unlikely to win the next election, regardless of who the leader is. So they'd rather that kind of so-called centrist faction of um, the Conservative Party fail in in the election to therefore create within the party, both the parliamentary party and in the base, Uh, further, you know, further support and further coalescing of of forces around that Boris Johnsonite politics, which did win them a landslide um, victory in 2019. And Rishi Sunak is certainly walking into a lot of those traps by associating himself with deeply unpopular figures um, like David Cameron, who have, just like him, very little democratic legitimacy.
0: I think what this whole incident speaks to is just how shallow Rishi Sunak's support within the Parliamentary Conservative Party really is. Because as was pointed out by Suella Braverman in her XOXO Gossip Girl letter, he was rejected by the membership. He was brought in as the second choice of prom date after Liz Truss was uh, ousted. And, of course, Boris Johnson and others, you know, still really blame him for the downfall of his government. So he's not been able to attract a lot of uh, support from what would otherwise be his ideological bedmates, the Brexiteer wing of the party who coalesced around Liz Truss. And they were now looking for another headbanger, I think, to be their, you know, queen over the water, the one that really could have been. And what they've got left is Suella Braverman. Um, I don't envy them. Let's move on to our next story. Israel's finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, has called for Palestinians in Gaza to leave the territory, saying this. I welcome the initiative of the voluntary emigration of Gaza Arabs to countries around the world. This is the right humanitarian solution for the residents of Gaza and the entire region after 75 years of refugees, poverty, and danger. The state of Israel will no longer be able to accept the existence of an independent entity in Gaza. Emigration is one word for it. Nakba is another. And given the conditions in Gaza right now, there's no question of there being anything voluntary about it. Despite being an area declared safe by Israel, the south of the territory continues to see heavy shelling with the city of Khan Unis targeted by Israel overnight. The city's population has more than doubled, going from just 400,000 to more than a million in only five weeks. That's because Palestinians from the north of the territory sought shelter there after Israel issued an evacuation order and began their ground operation. But few have found safety. The latest bombardment has hit civilian neighbourhoods. Rockets struck apartment buildings, homes and tents that sprung up to house refugees. Thirteen people have been reported killed. The injured were taken to Nasser Hospital, a facility that is already operating far beyond capacity. Like so many other hospitals in Gaza, it is in desperate need of fuel and electricity, as well as medical supplies like antibiotics and anaesthesia. When the Palestinians in the South aren't being bombed, they're starving. According to the United Nations, only 39% of food needs are being met. Staple foods like bread, eggs and dairy products have now run out in most shops and cooking basic foods like rice and lentils has been made difficult by water and fuel shortages. In the north of the Strip those Palestinians who remain find themselves in a war zone and we should warn you this next footage from Reuters contains images some may find disturbing. In the Al-Rimal neighborhood in Gaza City, local residents have accused Israeli forces of shooting at Palestinians to force them to evacuate south. Palestinians moving through the area have taken to carrying white flags to mark themselves out as civilians. Israel also appears to be using advanced unmanned weaponry in the region. Ghassan Abu Sitta is a British neurosurgeon working in Gaza City. He's reported this. We have received over 20 chest and neck gunshot wounds fired from Israeli quadcopter drones. This is a low-flying sniper drone. When it comes to killing, they are so innovative. The Al-Ali hospital where Abu Sitta works is currently the only hospital operating in the north of Gaza. That's after the region's largest hospitals, the Al-Quds and Al-Shifa, ceased to operate due to shortages, bombardment and gunfire in the surrounding streets. In Al Shifa, medics and patients are trapped inside as tanks take up positions outside the hospital's gates and fighting rages beyond its walls. Since its medical facility shut down due to lack of power on Sunday, at least 32 patients and six premature babies have died there, according to the health ministry. And more are likely to follow. Without electricity, the hospital's 36 remaining premature babies have been removed from their incubators, with doctors using foil to keep them warm. The babies weigh just a few pounds each and would otherwise die in the cold. These are shocking scenes from the very beginning of life. At Al-Shifa, the end of life is now just as appalling. We reported yesterday that over 100 dead bodies were stacked in the courtyard of the Al-Shifa hospital, slowly decomposing and increasing the risk of disease outbreaks. Today, hospital workers have reportedly dug a mass grave to finally lay the victims of the assault to rest. According to Dr. Ahmed el Mokalati, a surgeon working in Al-Shifa, the Israelis have refused permission to bury the dead and are restricting movement around the compound. These are the conditions in Gaza, inflicted on a civilian population by the Israeli government. There is no safety in the north of the territory, nor in the south, nor in the hospitals, nor even for babies in incubators. And in death, there's no dignity either. In these conditions, those who choose to get out alive aren't voluntarily emigrating. They're being ethnically cleansed. They're suffering a second Nakba. Dahlia, even President Biden is now saying that hospitals in Gaza should be more protected than they are. Do you think there's any chance of Israel bowing to international pressure and scaling back some of their assaults on
1: hospitals? Biden's words are are just words. And I imagine that they come more from a desire by Biden to assuage domestic turbulence that is kind of coming out of his response. I don't think that he could have possibly anticipated the level of support for the Palestinian people across uh, U.S. society. Uh, And it is beginning to bear a very negative picture for his uh, imminent general election that he is going to be facing. He is Mm -hmm. lagging behind Trump in five critical states. And the fact that he is currently seen to be Greenlighting war crimes uh, is given as a, as a key reason as to why he is lagging behind Trump. Not because Trump would necessarily be any better, but because many people feel unable to vote for someone who is greenlighting what the, the scenes that we are we are seeing. And that is why it is incredibly important that us in, you know, in the UK, in Britain, in the US, that we pressure and make sure that our voices are heard amongst our elected representatives, because ultimately, if they don't care about Palestinians in Gaza, they at least do care about their own careers, and they care about the prospect of not being elected. And so really demonstrating by emailing your MPs by, you know, going on the streets is, is incredibly important. We should all be very afraid. To live in the world that we are currently living in because what we are seeing right now with even premature babies in incubators being seen as fair game in war we are seeing a complete collapse of all of the norms of international law of international law as a meaningful concept it's, I, I don't come to this with some kind of starry-eyed vision that the law will save us. You know, the law has always been a primarily a tool of the powerful. It has always had its exceptions, um, for sure. But even the, the minor kind of legitimacy or kind of stronghold that international institutions and legal frameworks had are currently collapsing before our very eyes. Of course, it's not the first time that international law has been broken uh, on such a scale. The Iraq war is is a not so so recent, but also somewhat recent example. Uh, But we did see, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine illegally, we did see an immediate step into action you know russian the the russian elite were immediately sanctioned in a way that did has genuinely impacted the russian regime but we are seeing that in general the the stronghold that international institutions and international law is supposed to hold up against things like genocide and ethnic cleansing are completely crumbling before our eyes and We should all be very afraid to live in a world like this because, you know, when we go, I'm sure a lot of people watching um, tonight have been on protests uh, for Palestine, have been on the protests that have been happening every weekend for the last several weeks. And one slogan that really, really sort of sends shivers down my spine and is really, really encapsulates the heart of why this is so important is the slogan, in our thousands, in our millions, we are all Palestinians. And obviously, that's often taken as an articulation of solidarity, and it is. But I actually think it also should be taken very literally, because what you have in Gaza, what you have in Palestine more generally, is a constant state of exception. People who live in a constant state of exception to regulatory norms, to legal frameworks And partly that is because they are stateless. It is because they are occupied or many of them are stateless. And as such, you have a population that can be endlessly experimented on. They can be experimented on in terms of how far can we push legal frameworks to their breaking point? What will actually happen if we cross the line over and over again? How can we normalize the consistent breaking of international laws and frameworks But not only are they a stage of experimentation for breaking the law, but also for various technologies of domination. And, you know, I mean technologies both in terms of information technologies. You know, Israel has always been considered, especially over the past 50 years, a leader in technology and surveillance and in policing because it has this population that it can experiment on in ways that are not acceptable in other contexts because it is such an unprotected population. And then those technologies of domination, literal and sort of metaphorical, become exported around the world and we all become subject to them. So when we say in our thousands, in our millions, we are all Palestinians, we don't just mean that as an articulation of solidarity. We mean that the world and the norms that the Palestinians are living in today are the world and, is the world and the norms that we are all going to be living in in the future. And I particularly think that this is important at this juncture because we are entering an era of mass displacement. We are entering an era where the climate is destabilizing our fundamental system so dramatically that displacement is increasingly going to become the norm and not the exception. And what we are seeing is a testing ground for what can be done. How far can we abandon a population? How? What will actually happen if we cross those sacred lines. And that is why it is very important why, that we as a people make it clear that there will be consequences. There will be consequences for our elected representatives. They will have to pay with their careers if they green light this, because the world of the Palestinians today is the world of all of us tomorrow. And that is why we are all staked in a ceasefire happening today.
0: We're going to move on to our next story. Al-Shifa is the largest and most well-equipped hospital in the Gaza Strip. And since the outbreak of war in October, it has also become a shelter for internally displaced Palestinians. But according to Israel and its allies, Al-Shifa doesn't just tend to the wounded and give sanctuary to those who need it. They also say it's the headquarters of Hamas and therefore a legitimate military target. This is what Benjamin Netanyahu had to say yesterday. It is the battle of civilization against barbarism. Israel is fighting according to international law. The Israeli army is doing an exemplary job trying to minimize the civilian casualties. This was at roughly the same time as Al Shifa was being encircled by IDF tanks and, according to reports from the Gaza Health Ministry, being shot at by Israeli sniper fire. Now, we've discussed on the show before that claiming Hamas uses civilians and civilian infrastructure as human shields doesn't give Israel legal carte blanche to drop bombs indiscriminately. Any use of force has to be proportionate, and crucially, you have to be able to prove that combatants have chosen to use civilians with a specific intent to stop a military target from being attacked. So if Hamas bases operations in proximity to civilian populations. That's not enough by itself to legally justify a military attack by Israel. Human Rights Watch have demanded that the Israeli military should be investigated for war crimes for its attacks on Gaza's hospitals. This is what they say. Despite the Israeli military's claims on November 5th, 2023, of Hamas's cynical use of hospitals, no evidence put forward would justify depriving hospitals and ambulances of their protected status under international law. They continue, the World Health Organization (WHO) has reported that at least 521 people, including 16 medical workers, have been killed in 137 attacks on healthcare in Gaza as of November 12th. These attacks, alongside Israel's decisions to cut off electricity and water and block humanitarian aid to Gaza, have severely impeded healthcare access. The United Nations found as of November 10th that two-thirds of primary care facilities and half of all hospitals in Gaza are not functioning at a time when medical personnel are dealing with unprecedented numbers of severely injured patients. Hospitals have run out of medicine and basic equipment, and doctors told Human Rights Watch that they were forced to operate without anesthesia and to use vinegar as an antiseptic. The legal case for Israel's attacks on Gaza's hospitals is weak. So, instead, they're cranking up a propaganda war. Here's IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari giving a guided tour of the Rantisi Children's Hospital in Gaza City.
2: A woman, clothes, and a rope. A rope next to the legs. And look above this, look above it. It's a baby bottle. It's a baby bottle in a basement, above, a World Health Organization sign. This is a suspicion for area where hostages were being held. We're now looking at an infrastructure. You don't need to build something improvisedly in a hospital in the basement. Unless you wanna hold someone in the basement, you don't want anyone to see him. Again, we're in the same basement, and here we see diapers, and we see, I don't know, maybe something. We see diapers. I want you to see this room. It's in the basement of the hospital. We can see this area is a closed area from the rest of the hospital. We can see the ventilation air that was done improvisely to this area. And we can see infrastructures that was built in here. Toilets, shower, a small kitchen will provide the terrorists their needs. Also conduct a hideout a hideout where terrorists take hostages and hideout. And I will show you now the evidence. You are now entering into the room where we suspect the hostages were being held. I want you to look at this room. People are putting curtains with nothing above, just wall. No reason to put here a curtain unless you want to film hostages and deliver movies. And I will show you more evidence in this room. There is a list, this list in Arabic, in Arabic, this list says we are in an operation, the operation against Israel, started in the 7th of October. This is a guardian list where every terrorist writes his name and every terrorist has his own shift, guarding the people that were here. So
0: there's toilets, showers, diapers, and bottles in the basement of a children's hospital. That's the evidence cited in that video that hostages hostages were held there. Now, that doesn't seem rock solid to me. I'm not saying it's impossible. I don't have the ability to prove or disprove anything either way. But hospitals have also been used as bomb shelters by people in Gaza, So all of those amenities being found in a basement are totally consistent with a theory that they're used for the purpose of sheltering from Israeli airstrikes. There's another thing that suggests that the IDF aren't exactly reliable interpreters of what they're seeing on the ground. Remember that shift schedule purportedly showing the rota for Hamas terrorists? Arabic speakers on Twitter pointed out that it's actually just a calendar, simply stating the days of the week. But that's not all that Daniel Daniel Hagari has had to say about nefarious goings-on at Rantisi Children's Hospital.
2: I'm here in Gaza City. We are here next to a house of a terrorist. This is one of the senior terrorists who is the head of the operational naval operations that led the raids into Israel. His house is right next to to a school. His house is 200 yards from the hospital, the hospital of Rantisi. Next to his house, there is a tunnel. Now I want to show you an operational tunnel. The tunnel is built with electricity. We first saw the solar panels, then the electricity goes here, and it goes down directly to the tunnel. Now you can see the tunnel. You can see the tunnel. The tunnel is let down more than 20 meters down. The robot found a door, a door that is bulletproof. It's, uh, it's explosives proof. So it looks like a hard evidence, a clear evidence that the hospital direction is connected. This is a cover tunnel. It's part of the same floor and it slides down here. So it's a cover tunnel so nobody can find it. This is Rantisi Hospital. And this is the place where I showed you the tunnel. I wanted to see. This is the backside of the hospital. Hamas used this hospital. Tonight, we have entered into this building. Later in the
0: video, he shows a cache of weapons and a motorcycle that the IDF say were found inside the hospital and belonged to Hamas fighters. Other people online have pointed out that there are some missing links from this footage. For instance, there isn't a continuous shot showing the external tunnel leading to the hospital basement. And Israel has a long history of making claims about civilian infrastructure being used for terrorist purposes, which later get debunked. On November 5th, Israeli authorities alleged that there is a Hamas tunnel under the Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa Hospital for Rehabilitation and Prosthetics, commonly known as the Qatari Hospital in Gaza. These claims by the IDF were investigated by Sanad, Al Jazeera's digital investigations team. They write this. A video released by Israel's military showed a hatch in the hospital courtyard, right next to an exterior wall that they alleged leads to a Hamas tunnel. However, Sanad's investigation shows that this is simply the access hatch for a water reservoir that the hospital uses to fill therapeutic pools for amputees, water the grounds, and a reserve water source in case of emergency. International law stipulates that you can't attack hospitals without a justification that's based in fact. So you can't just try and concoct a reason based on unreliable or false information in order to justify bombing a medical facility. Something that I find particularly interesting about the IDF's videos is that they clearly have an English-speaking audience in mind, so they're intended to shore up the case for war amongst Israel's allies, and in particular, America. We should be asking ourselves why it's an IDF spokesperson presenting this information and not, for instance, a journalist with an international outlet. Well, I've got an idea. In 2014, Israeli forces shelled a UN-run school in Gaza and killed 19 people, including sleeping children, claiming that militants had fired rockets from the school's vicinity. No evidence was ever produced to back up this allegation. That same year, when Israeli missiles killed nine children playing football on Gaza Beach, the IDF blamed terrorists operating in the area and claimed they were aiming at a militant's compound. This also turned out to be untrue. When an Israeli airstrike killed five children in Gaza in 2022, IDF initially blamed a misfired Islamic Jihad rocket before, again, quietly admitting culpability. It's worth remembering that journalists, while often flawed and often biased, they can't just make stuff up in the way that Israeli armed forces have been known to. And one way in which Israeli propaganda has worked in recent years, is to present the extensive tunnel network in Gaza as evidence that the densely populated enclave is irredeemably infiltrated by Hamas militants. Because the tunnels were built by Hamas under civilian infrastructure, that means you don't have to try and distinguish between military and civilian targets in your bombing campaigns. The truth is actually a bit more complicated than that. We mostly talk about the tunnels in Gaza within the context of terrorism, either Hamas rocket attacks or the hostages taken on October 7th. But as Adam Tooze pointed out in an article last month, the tunnel network was established first and foremost in order to access goods from Egypt. This is from an academic article by Nicholas Pelham. Hamas's summer 2007 military takeover of the Strip marked a turning point for the tunnel trade. The siege already in place was tightened. Egypt shut the Rafah terminal, Israel designated Gaza a hostile entity, and following a salvo of rocket fire on its border areas in November 2007, cut food supplies by half and severed fuel imports. In January 2008, Israel announced a total blockade on fuel after rockets were fired at Sderot, banning all but seven categories of humanitarian supplies as gasoline supplies dried up, Gazans abandoned cars on the roadside, and bought donkeys. So, immediately following the Hamas takeover, Gaza found itself blockaded on two sides, Egypt and Israel. You can see the precursors to today's crisis and the precipitous decline of food imports and a total ban on fuel, and the literal de-development of Gaza. So, they're going backwards from the car as a means of transportation to using beasts of burden. This, from the UN, shows that the size of Gaza's tunnel economy is a reflection of just how stringent Israeli and Egyptian blockades have been. The size of the tunnel trade was greater than the volume of trade through official channels. According to the United Nations Human Settlements Program, based on the materials allowed in by Israel, it would have taken 80 years to rebuild the 6,000 housing units destroyed during the military operation in December 2008, January 2009. However, imports through the tunnels were so significant that they reduced the time frame to five years. Similarly, Gaza's power plant ran on diesel from Egypt, brought through the tunnels in the range of 1 million litres per day before June 2013. Hamas took a cut of the profits from the tunnel trade, likely generating hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue per year in the 2010s. So... The story goes that Hamas are bad because they opportunistically concealed themselves in civilian infrastructure, but what people don't talk about is the fact that Israeli and Egyptian policy has created a context where civilians and militants are forced into sharing the same infrastructure. The tunnel trade maintained a flow of money and weapons to Hamas, but it also meant that ordinary Gazans could feed themselves, power their homes, and rebuild their neighborhoods after Israeli bombings. And I think this is why so much of the media is ill equipped to deal with Israel's PR machine. One, their desire for exciting footage overwhelms responsible journalistic skepticism towards the provenance and interpretation of that footage. And two, the designation of Hamas as a terrorist organization means they don't want to probe too deeply into the reasons why tunnel infrastructure exists in the Gaza Strip in the first place. Tunnels just equal terrorism, and therefore, a legitimate military target. Now, if you're new to our coverage, thank you so much for tuning in. We do this show every weeknight at 6pm and this broadcast is only possible because of the support of our regular supporters. Navara Media is funded by you, our audience, and right now we're running a fundraiser to get 5,000 new supporters to back us. So if you want to support truthful, independent media then head to navaramediacom support. You can set up a regular donation from just £1 a month, and that link is in the description. And of course, a very big thank you to all of you who already back us each and every month. Let's move on to our final story. Zippy Hotavelli is Israel's ambassador to the UK, and she has been doing the rounds on British media, making some pretty explosive claims. This morning, she joined Kay Burley on Sky News and was asked about the number of civilians killed in Gaza
3: so far by the Israeli armed forces. We can complete this war with minimized casualties. We, we are trying to do our best to minimize casualties. 11,000 dead. Some of them are terrorists, as you know. Not all of them. We're not, we're not targeting civilians. We're just targeting- What percentage do you think of terrorists? Cannot- can, I believe over 50%.
0: That's a very specific claim there from Sipi Hotavelli that over 50% of the Palestinians killed in Gaza since October 7th are terrorists. So let's look at the numbers. These numbers are from Gaza's Ministry of Health. Over 11,000 people have been killed since the beginning of the war. Two thirds of them are women and children. And a further 2,700 people are missing, thought to be dead or trapped under the rubble. So even if you take the obviously ridiculous view that every single adult male killed in Gaza was a terrorist, you still don't get anywhere near 50%. But perhaps this can shed a bit of light on how Sippi Hottavelli arrived at that conclusion.
3: I want to tell you something. We thought it was 300 kilometres. As we go deeply into the Gaza Strip, we realise every second house has this entrance to um, actually to an underground uh, terror city. So they basically turned all the houses in the Gaza Strip to their own facilities. They took over schools, masks, hospitals, almost everything you can imagine. Think about it as a ghost city that is turning into a terror city because they built this 1,000 kilometers underground city. By the way, it cost a billion dollars to do that. So where all this money came from? From the generous support of the international community. They were thinking they're giving the money to the poor people of Gaza, but eventually it was Hamas stealing this humanitarian aid giving it to its own military machine, creating this underground terror city. So this is this whole, as horrific as it gets when you think about Hamas abuse of international aid. So you need to make sure Hamas won't exist after the war finishes. I mean, look, say what you like about Zippy Hotzevelli, but she really does have a flair for the dramatic.
0: Think about it as a ghost city that's turning into a terror city. It's a neat, bit of gothic rhetoric that helps you forget that gaza is home to over two million people because of the blockade from israel and egypt the tunnel network in gaza has been responsible for getting much of the fuel food and construction goods needed for civilian purposes into the gaza strip but as extensive as it must be I find it difficult to believe that every second home has a secret door down to an underground city. It's like she's talking about the Court of Miracles from the Disney movie Hunchback of Notre Dame. Of course, if you choose to believe that every second home in Gaza takes you down to the spooky network of terrorism, it's easier to imagine that over 50% of Palestinians are themselves terrorists. This was an interesting moment in her interview with Krishnan Guru Murthy on Channel 4 News.
1: This I'm asking you happen. do you have any
2: empathy with the Palestinian position?
3: I have zero empathy to people that time after time. Refuse to, to recognize the right of the Jewish state to their homeland, the Jewish people in their homeland. I have zero sympathy because I want to, to live in a world where we can live together. How can but you they live deny, together? But they deny my right have to exist. you have no
2: zero empathy in your own words with those people.
3: No, it's not what I said. I have zero sympathy to the fact that they lost their land. They didn't lose their land. They committed the crime of attacking the small the, the small state yeah. of Israel uh, after the UN decision So do you have any empathy with the Palestinian ta- people Absolutely I think there. What is your empathy I think, Just to I think my empathy to the Palestinian people that we could have had a flourishing region having the best high tech the best No, life. that's an argument. No, no, no. I'm asking we you to share a...
2: their pain for so, a moment. So
3: I'll just, I'll just give you an example, OK? The best flourishing economic areas are in Judea and Samaria, where you have factories that have Palestinians and Israelis working together. That could have been division everywhere. But when you refuse to recognise the right of a Jew to exist, yeah. this is where it fails. So I think this ideology that doesn't want Jews to exist, this is a tragedy. I don't think... That's they're... not empathy. No, what I'm trying to say that empathy comes when you have the understanding that I have the right to exist. Unfortunately, there were people in Hamas that they showed that clearly, that they didn't believe that any of the Jewish people in the state of Israel need to exist.
2: So that there is no, that the truth is there is no empathy between you empathy and the I have empathy for the
3: tragedy prefer. of the leadership, I mean, yes. I have empathy that a, they are under the tragedy of their leadership.
2: This is a very hopeless conversation then, isn't
3: it? No, it's not, because I think what's really hopeless is to build imaginary solutions. What's really hopeless is to think that a terror organisation is something that will never hurt you. I think that the imaginary and the illusionary discourse that many people have need to be stopped. You cannot build peace on lies and illusions.
0: I mean, God, that was really like pulling teeth there. Her first answer to do you have any empathy is no, I have zero sympathy. And then she gets to the point, well, I have empathy for the tragedy of their leadership. But once more, this is pinning the blame for Palestinian suffering on other Palestinians. The idea that you could have empathy for the pain and suffering of displacement in the 1948 Nakba, the pain and suffering of being displaced because of settlement expansion, the pain and suffering of losing your children in an airstrike was just completely alien to her. And I, I, I wonder to myself if that's how you have to think if your life's work is the defence of Israeli policy. There's absolutely no way you can consider that Palestinians have humanity, have interiority, have experiences, have the capacity to feel pain and suffering just like you do. Because if you could imagine that, you wouldn't be out there defending apartheid. Dalia, do you think that Sipi Hotavelli really believes the things that she's saying or are these just tried and tested
1: lines for the media? I actually really believe that she does uh, because this is what, Racism is to be subject to racism is to essentially be in a state of constant presumed guilt. Uh, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls it, calls it a cloud of presumed guilt that ensnares you and follows you wherever you go. And at the core of what the Israeli ambassador is saying there is essentially that. Everyone is fair game because everyone in Palestine, in Gaza, has that hate in their heart and has that inherent barbarism and that inherent inability to coexist as normal human beings would want to coexist. Uh, and we see this, you know. One one thing that we often hear from the Israelis is this idea of, you know, Palestinians teach their children to hate, and what that does is it put a marks on the backs of ev- a mark on the back of every Palestinian child. Because then, if you go from that point, then you can go to the point of, well, it's okay to dispossess them, it's okay to kill them, because they're gonna if they're not a threat now, because they're a literal, you know baby in an incubator, then, you know, they'll grow up to be a threat um, and to be a, a barbarian and to be have an inherent lust for violence. And so that is how you desensitize yourself to conditions that you would not accept for any other human being. And even though, you know, I have a huge problem with the framing of women and children as inherently innocent, and therefore men as not Inherently innocent, but it means that even if you might have those standards for women and children as having this kind of particular protected status, if you suddenly see them as potential future barbarians or as someone who's going to give birth to a potential future barbarian, then suddenly it becomes okay to wholesale kill them. And I think that there is a, I I do believe that that is a genuine conviction. It's the same logic that leads to Mark Duggan being shot, you know, for no, unprovoked, and then the press essentially implying that, oh, well, he had connections to gangs. Oh, he was, you know, a gang member and using all of these euphemisms in order to essentially say, if he hadn't done anything then to get shot, he would have eventually done something that would have meant he deserved to get shot. And that is essentially the logic, the kind of the necropolitical logic with which the entirety of Gaza, certainly, but I would argue the entirety of the Palestinian people, are perceived by the Israeli government. Um, And unfortunately, you know, and this is why we say, Uh, That racism is not only an attempt to dehumanize those who are subject to racism, but people who practice racism are themselves dehumanized by their ideology of racism. Because not being able to feel empathy, not being able to unable, being unable to categorically state that you feel empathy for, you know, those babies that had their incubators switched off because the, the hospital ran out of fuel, that is a de- that that dehumanizes you so you have to kill something inside of yourself to be able to say that with a straight face and then go home and sleep at night and so unfortunately you know this kind this undercurrent there's this this unifying logic of racism that leads to black people black people being killed in in on the streets of of London in the streets of Ferguson and Palestinians being killed in Gaza for simply existing. It's the same unifying logic of racism which marks certain people as being inherently guilty and inherently unworthy, and therefore that the the the, the function of racism is to make us all more comfortable with those people being killed because if they weren't a risk to the public now they will be a risk in the future and that that's the kind of logic that leads to the sort of violence um, that we are seeing unfolding in gaza right now
0: dahlia thank you so much for joining me tonight and thank you all for tuning in thanks for
1: having me ash <laughs> um,
0: this show will be back tomorrow at 6 p.m for now you've been watching navara media good night
2: this broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to slash
1: support.